0: Keep you on with the news, but there's actually a set of pretty serious bushfires burning right now still in Northern California. Um, it's gutted a little town called Paradise. Um, the town's pretty much gone. Six and a half thousand homes were destroyed. Now, you might not have heard of Paradise, but you probably have heard of Malibu. right? Malibu, near uh, L.A., where a lot of the celebrities live. Well, from Malibu, they were able to see the fires coming towards the Malibu's 800 kilometers to the south and a lot of celebrities in Malibu have had to also evacuate their homes as the fire has moved south. Now that's over there in California but we know that here in Australia summer is coming which also means for us that bushfire season is coming for us as well. Now with bushfires you'll probably know that there are different uh, threat level indications and Depending on the threat level you are to have sort of different responses. So everything from low to very high um, Your response should be to make sure you have a fire plan. I don't know if you have a fire plan We don't but uh, you to monitor con- conditions. Just check everything is okay. Be ready to act if necessary That's the first level, but then if it gets too severe That's when you have to start thinking that we might need to leave and if your home is not prepared which would be our case because our home is not prepared then you should leave as soon as possible early in the morning or in the middle of the night when it goes to extreme it's pretty much you must go unless you happen to live in a bunker or something like that and then if it ever gets a the catastrophic then run okay different threat levels different responses now I'm telling you this because mark 13 the chapter we just read Jesus is giving different threat responses or different threat levels for which we have to act differently depending on the threat level. Um, Jesus in the final days of his life, and he and his disciples right at the beginning of the chapter, as you know and read before, they're looking at the beautiful temple of Israel's capital, Jerusalem, and then he's speaking of its end, but he's not just speaking of the end of the temple, of course, he's actually speaking about the end of the world, And so Jesus' words are relevant to us because he's going to give us the various warning signs. We need to know where the threat level is so that we, we need to know when to respond differently and when we need to take action. You see, the world will end one day. Jesus has promised that. Every one of his promises have come true, and we'll see some of these promises come true even within the lifetime of the first hearers of Mark. When the world ends for us, and all people, it will end not with a whimper, but with a bang, because Jesus will return. And so today's message is, or well, the today's question is, are we ready? Are we ready? We need to pay attention to his words here to make sure we are. So let's pray, and let's get into this passage. Lord Jesus, please help us understand a passage that is pretty difficult. Help us understand, not so that we can grab every detail, know all the intricacies, Satisfy our brains. Help us most importantly to take heed, to be ready for when you come back. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Following me on the outline, uh, you got when you came in. I'm at point number one. So, Mark 13, um, we read earlier, opens in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, we've been doing the, 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 the biography of Jesus by Mark, and Jesus, in these chapters, the last chapters, just has seven confrontations with the leadership of the jewish people and the verse one as they're going through the temple complex right in the heart of jerusalem uh, one of jesus disciples gasps in marvel because as he looks around he's amazed by this temple um, the temple is herod's temple herod uh, was a king not really a king because the romans were in charge but they put herod in charge of and gave him the, the, the puppet title of king but herod Um, didn't build the temple from scratch, but he renovated it in such a beautiful way that it was one of the marvels and the wonders of the ancient world. It takes Herod about four decades, 40 years, to renovate the temple. By the time that Jesus' day came around, it was nearly done. There was a quote from an uh, ancient source that said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. right, that's how much... Uh, people thought of this temple. The temple complex that Herod uh, extended was built on foundations the size of 40 football fields. Just give you an idea of how big that is: 40 football fields. Marble slabs used to build this temple; some were 20 meters long. That's half an Olympic pool. And it made um. The temple, and one of the ancient historians will hear a number of times today, his name is Josephus, a Jewish historian. He said, and make the temple from afar look like snow-covered mountains, these beautiful white stone slabs. Um, You'll see on the picture there, there are these massive columns, these columns all around. Well, there's 162 of them, and they're in four rows, each of them 12 meters high, and they're so wide that you'd have to get three men linking arms to hug it how big these columns are. Now, that central building, uh, this one, the central building here, that is 45 meters high. That's 13-story apartment, 45 meters, and it's covered in gold, covered in gold. And Josephus, again, the historian says, it's so brilliant when it reflected the sun that it was uh, like a fiery flash, and you would have to avert your eyes because it was so golden. Now, more than just a beautiful building the temple was the center of the jewish world it was their religious life it was their social life it was their political life i mean they may no longer have their own kings or their self-governance because the romans ruled but they had this they had the temple this was their identity and this was their security so you can imagine jesus when he says in verse 2 he says do you see all these great buildings not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Imagine how shocked his hearers would have been, his disciples would have been. It's like you're taking your friend from another country or another city and you're showing them Sydney Harbour and they go, wow, this is beautiful. And then some random guy comes and goes, you know what? That harbour bridge, that opera house, the tower, not one of them will be remaining. Everything will be destroyed. That, it's that shocking. It's that shocking. But even though Jesus' words are shocking, it's actually pretty consistent with what we've seen so far because if you've been following us in, the, uh, in our sermon series on Mark, since at least chapter 10, you remember Jesus has been pronouncing His judgment on the temple. He's already said it's, it's got to go. Right? The fig tree, all of that was about the temple. Clearing out the temple was an act to symbolize the destruction of the temple. That was from two weeks ago. And then the shocking statement is followed up in verse 4. Jesus and his party, after they leave the temple, they relocate out of Jerusalem. They're on the Mount of Olives, which is higher than Jerusalem. They're overlooking Jerusalem. They can see the temple. And then verse 4, obviously, his his disciples ask, Well, when will these things happen, they say? What will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? Now, it's really important to note that they're still talking about the temple. They ask about these things. When are they going to fulfill? They're asking about the end of the temple. Now, Mark 13 is about the end of the world. It is about the second coming, but that only comes later. The end of the temple that they're looking at, Herod's temple, is in the immediate view, and that's really important for us to keep in mind here. Otherwise, a lot of this passage won't make sense. But the end of the temple and the end of the world are linked, so we'll see the chapter will deal with both. Now, just to get your head around it, um, this is really how the chapter falls out. If you like structures, this gives you something to hang on as we read it, because we won't be able to go through verse by verse in uh, every verse in detail. Um, Jesus will talk about the end of the temple in two bits, and we'll see that in the next couple of points. Then he will turn his attention to the second coming, and then he will tell two parables or two stories. First one will come back to the temple, and the second one will be our the second coming again. Okay, that's... That's how the passage is going to fall out. So let's go to point B on point number one, and we'll look at firstly the birth pain signs. So verse number five, have your Bibles open. Let's, uh, let's pick up the reading again. Jesus said to them, that's his disciples, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, but these are the beginning of birth pains, okay? Jesus is answering their question in verse 4, when will this happen, this temple's destruction, but Jesus doesn't answer the when yet. He says, well, first there's going to be these things happening, but don't be deceived because that's not the end yet for the temple. They're just what he calls birth pains. Now, those of you who are mums, you'll know that uh, birth pains can go on a long time before you actually go into labor. So the average first labor is 12 hours. I think my sister's first labor was like a day, 24 hours. And your contractions start, but you know what? If you go into hospital when your contractions start, they'll usually send you back home. Because it's not until the cervix is fully dilated, for those of you who know, that birth is ready. And so contractions might, the contractions might start, the birth pains might start hours, perhaps a day before you're ready to give birth. That's what he means. They're just the first contractions. They'll lead somewhere, but don't get alarmed yet. So Jesus here is saying, in terms of the bushfire threat levels, he's saying, this is first category stuff. Okay, This is the watch and wait response. All right? Don't get too excited yet, watch and wait. When these things happen that he talks about, don't be alarmed. And he needs to say it is because when these things happen, it may seem really serious, but it's easy if you don't know that they're not quite the end yet, it's easy to be deceived. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if you saw this on Facebook or maybe you were in the city and saw one of these posters. This was just this year. Tsunami to hit Sydney, 20th September, 2018, impact at 9pm, 400,000 lives lost. Did anyone die in that? No? No one here? Good. It didn't happen. But this kind of thing has been happening for thousands of years. People claiming it's the end and it's not the end. And these kind of things happen when people are a little bit too excited, thinking that the end has come when it hasn't. And it's easy to be deceived. And the key message in this time of waiting, you'll see it in verse 9. You'll see it in verse 13. Right? It's watch and wait. It's be on guard, be alert. Verse 13, stand firm, hold your ground. And he also follows on to talk about persecution. And that's why it's especially important to keep watching but also to stand firm because betrayal and persecution will be part of these times, these birth pains. When it happens, Jesus says, trust God to give you the words to say, to stand firm, to keep going. Okay, we won't read those verses again, but you know, fast forward a few years and um, the book of Acts, you'll know that these things happened to the disciples. They were on trial for their life, they were persecuted, they were brought before kings and governors. And certainly, this is the case throughout history. When people are brought before trial, God gives them the words to say. All right, but these are all birth pains, Jesus saying. And then we go to the key turning point, which is verse 14. All right, birth pain signs, and now end signs. So verse 14, let me read those again, those verses. But when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand, it's talking to us now, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one on the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. All right, so you see that this sign is different to all the other ones. The key turning point will be this one sign, what he calls the abomination that causes desolation. That's a mouthful. Let's try and break it up. What's an abomination? Abomination is something that's basically really disgusting. All right, some of you think durian is an abomination. I think it's heavenly. Anyway, uh, it's something disgusting or loathsome or detestable. It makes you want to turn away in horror. That's an abomination. Desolation, something that's been desolate, is something that's been abandoned, something that, that's been ruined. All right? It's like paradise, the, the city that got burnt through with the California fires. That's a desolation. So, together, abomination that causes desolation. There's going to be something, a sign, something so utterly disgusting that it's going to cause ruin and abandonment. That's what it means. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible you hear of it. It actually comes from the prophet Daniel. Even in your Bibles, you probably see a little number B or A or something, a footnote. And there's a few passages in Daniel. Daniel is a prophecy about a coming king who will trample on God's people, bring great suffering, and along with it, desecrate the temple. Daniel was written about 400 years before Jesus. So, I'm going to show you what Daniel says in one of those passages. You don't have to turn to so it, it's on the screen. He's talking about this king who will come. And he says, This king will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is de- decreed is poured out on him. Daniel was writing in the midst of the Babylonian exile, where God's people were shipped to a foreign land in Babylon. Daniel looks to the future after they've returned, after they're back in the land, and he says, this king's going to come, and he's going to do this to the temple, the temple that they rebuilt. Well, that actually happened in 167 BC. The Greek king Antiochus IV conquered the land, went into the temple, set up an altar to a pagan god and sacrificed pigs on the altar in the Jerusalem temple. Jews really with the pigs thing you know it's unclean so he did that right in the face of them that was abominable and it caused desolation yeah so that was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy now a few hundred years later Jesus is picking up that same image from Daniel and he's saying well that kind of thing will happen again and when that happens that's the sign to look for And because Daniel's prophecy was about what will happen at the temple, it makes sense that Jesus is also speaking about an abomination that will happen in and around the temple as well. And when that happens, Jesus says, that's when you change alert levels. All right, bushfire alert levels. We are now in catastrophic. This is the, what are you still doing here? Run, action taken, when you see that happening. So when did all that happen? Well, next point on your outlines, it all happened about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. The year was 70 A.D. A few years earlier, in 66 A.D., the Jewish people rebelled against their Roman overlords. And Rome, as you could expect, mighty Rome, decides to send an army to quash it. They send General Titus, who would become a future emperor, and they march on Judea. Now, in 67 AD, the leaders of this rebellion, they're called the Zealots, Jewish rebels, uh, sort of the Al Qaeda of their day, they take over the temple to make it their headquarters. They take over the temple, these men of violence who weren't priests, who weren't allowed in the temple, they end the sacrifices in order to take over the temple. There's a good chance that that was the abomination that causes desolation. And just to prove my point, the high priest at that time said this, Certainly it had been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. Or these sacred places that ought not to be trodden upon at random, filled with the feet of those blood-shedding villains. He's talking about these zealots, these Jewish freedom fighters, or terrorists, depending on what side you're on. He called it an abomination. And then in 70 AD, the walls of Jerusalem were breached after a five-month siege. Now, in ancient terms, five months is a pretty short siege. Some siege has gone for a year or longer. Note Jesus said in verse 20, if the Lord hadn't cut short these days, right? this is a relatively short siege, but it was intense suffering. What happened next is Nothing short of utter destruction, okay? Um, Soldiers ran into the city, set fire to it, and they began a frenzied slaughter of innocent people. Let me read to you from Josephus, who was alive at the time, and this is what he wrote. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher above the altar, A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. The temple mount everywhere enveloped in flames seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames and the numbers of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. He said that over 1 million were killed. There were reports of 500 being crucified every day. And nearly 100,000 were captured and enslaved. That's what happened in AD 70. And this is what's left of that temple. One wall. If you go to Jerusalem now, it's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. You see, Jesus' words came true. Judgment on Israel and its leadership and the temple, that fruitless fig tree we looked at a couple of weeks ago, all of it happened, as Jesus said in verse 30, within this generation. Within a generation of those who were with him at that time, just 40 years after he spoke those words, it happened. Now, in case you're wondering, what happened to the Christians in Jerusalem? Did they get slaughtered along with the one million, enslaved along with the 100,000? Well, actually, historical records tell us there were very few Christians in Jerusalem at that time. They had actually fled the city. They had seen the warning from passages like Mark 13. And they saw, remembered Jesus' words, And fled. And so very few Christians were actually caught up in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we would do well, wouldn't we, to remember that Jesus always keeps his word. Here is a very clear, direct prophecy fulfilled within a lifetime of those who heard it. Now, for the Jews, the destruction of their temple was the end of the world as they knew it. All right? It was. It was the end of their life. All of their social, political, national security. And their religious security all gone when the temple was destroyed. Now we need to remember that there is an end coming for our world too. And if for them the temple was their security, then for us, what are our securities? Because they're all going to go too. Whatever you take security from now will be gone the day that Jesus returns. And Jesus' words, remember, always come true. So are you ready? And it's to that we're going to turn. So point number two. We're going to look at the end of the world. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone driving. Um, A few few friends have gone to New Zealand recently. I think a few people like Jess Joseph, she's currently in New Zealand or coming back from New Zealand, her and Joe. And uh, sometimes you'd be driving and you would see this, right? Beautiful, huge mountain ahead of you. And it seems like one mountain. Until you actually get there, or if you turn kind of, you know, 90 degrees to the side, you actually see it's not one mountain, but two mountains. Right? From one perspective, it's just one mountain, but it's actually two, but one's hiding behind the other. Now, Mark 13 is actually the front on view. But you actually turn a little bit and you see that there's two mountains, not one. What I'm trying to say is this the end of the temple is the first mountain, but behind it, there's another mountain, and it's the end of all things. It's verses 24 to 27, where Jesus now shifts his attention. Now, the confusing thing about Mark 13 is it's, it's all chucked together in one chapter, and it seems like they're going to follow on from each other. It seems like they're talking about the same event, but it's not. Right? It's, 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 it's two mountains, except one's hiding behind the other. So in chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus now talks about something else. And so look there, verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, so following the distress and destruction of the temple, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So you see, while for us the temple's destruction was in the past, for us today, followers of Jesus, what he's talking about here, the second mountain, is still in the future. And that's a really important thing to remember because if the temple's end is what this chapter is all about and only about, then it's interesting for us, good history lesson, a little bit scary, but it's not directly relevant. But what if the temple's end, mountain one, is just a preview to mountain two and we are between those? There's a greater end coming, and we're still waiting for it. Well, then it's very directly relevant, right? We actually need to pay attention to these words because this is what he's saying. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he's not coming like the first time he came in humility, little baby in a manger in weakness. He's coming as he went to heaven, which is resurrected and glorified. He is the heir who's left earth to be crowned as king in heaven, but he's going to come back to earth to claim it as his own. He's coming back. And the Bible says that on the day that Jesus returns, every account will be settled. Every thought, word, and deed will be judged. Everything will be exposed. And verse 27 says if you belong to him, if the elect, you will be gathered to himself forever. But if you don't belong to Jesus, if you're not one of His, then this is something to be very, very nervous about, because you'll not be ready. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, come on, how can we take seriously this kind of end of the world, apocalyptic stuff? It's just like that poster about the September 20 tsunami. It's going to be one of those things that proves not to be true again. How can we take seriously Jesus? Well, I'll tell you how, why you can take it seriously. There's a big difference between what Jesus says here and the poster about the tsunami in Sydney. The difference is this is actually from Jesus' mouth. And he wasn't wrong about 70 AD. He has a track record of being right. Everything he said, and not just about the destruction of the temple, about his death, about his resurrection, everything has come true. And so his return to judge will come true too. So let me urge you to be ready. But that's not all. You guys who play um, computer games or like to watch movies and keep up with pop culture, you know what an Easter egg is, right? Easter egg are those kind of little things that um, game designers and movie people like to put into things and And if you have eyes to see, like Marvel movies, you'll actually find the little references and they're really fun to try and find because they're hidden. Well, you know what? Mark has Easter eggs for those who have eyes to see. Mark 13 isn't just about the end of the temple as a preview to the end of the world. He actually gives you Easter eggs as a preview to the preview. What do I mean by this? Because there is an end of the world moment described in Mark and it's actually within the time frame of his story, not even 40 years away, but within the time frame of Mark. This end of the world moment, in fact, will begin the next chapter, and we'll look into chapter 14, 15, 16 over the next three weeks. But let me show you some of the ways in which this chapter of Mark 13, you'll actually see Easter eggs in Mark's 14, 15, 16, and what's about to happen? Jesus, number of times in Mark 13, he keeps saying, keep watch, be on your guard, and he actually later on says, don't fall asleep. In chapter 14, he will tell his disciples on a number of times, keep watch, be on your guard, and then he comes and finds them falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. In chapter 13, verse 35, he talks about the owner coming and marks four time frames, evening, midnight, rooster crows, dawn, now, it's interesting when you read chapters 14 and 15, Mark will mark out those four times. Evening, the Last Supper, midnight, Jesus' garden and arrest. rest. Rooster crow, you probably know, Peter denying Jesus at dawn, Jesus before Pilate. In Mark chapter 13, verse 16, he says, When this happens, run and don't take your cloak. Interesting little side note. that you, It's just one of those random, Mark, why did you put this in here? When you read chapter 14, Jesus is arrested and a young man, it says, flees naked. Why did he put it in there? Maybe he's thinking about Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 obviously talks about unequal distress. Well, when do you see unequal distress when Jesus is in the garden and he's saying, Father, take this cup away from me? And he's sweating blood. The abomination that causes desolation. Well, what is the biggest abomination ever? Except that the Son of God is crucified. And he is deserted, desolate, on the cross by everyone, including God. Father, he says, right, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, Cosmic signs in chapter 13, solar eclipse. Well, what happened in Jesus' crucifixion? Solar eclipse. He talks about people seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, Jesus will, will be raised, and as he goes to heaven and exalted, he will ascend in a cloud, to receive power and glory and honor. Chapter 13 talks about angels. The word is messengers, by the way. Same word, angels, messengers, sent to gather the elect. Well, what's going to happen after Jesus' resurrection except that he sends his messengers to preach the gospel so that the chosen would be gathered to him? Now, look, Easter eggs, right? I think with Easter eggs, not everyone's convinced that Easter eggs are Easter eggs. So you may not be convinced by this reading. I think there's something to it. But even if not, no big deal. The main point, though, I'm trying to make here is actually consistent with the rest of what the New Testament says about the end and Jesus. And that is that Jesus' death and resurrection is an end-of-the-world event. That's, you don't even have to get that from Mark. You can get that from everywhere else. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I won't show you, but it says this, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Right? Jesus, his death and resurrection, was an end-of-the-world event. In other words, I want you to think about those two peaks, those mountains. Actually, not two peaks now. is it? It's three peaks. Right? It's Jesus' death and resurrection. There's the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. From one perspective, it's all one event. All the end of the world. From another perspective, it's the end broken up into three parts. Now, why is this happening like why is this even considered the end of the world i mean we're 2000 years on and we're still going in. well think about it just think about it a little bit more the end what is the end of according to the bible what is it the new beginning of right I mean, think about that the end is the end of the old order of things the end happens when god pronounces his verdict and his judgment on sin and its effects That's what the end of the world will be. God will pronounce His verdict and judgment on sin and deal with it and all of its effects. And it will be the new beginning of a new order when God will be back in authority, in charge of the world, and God will restore all things. That's what the end of the world is going to be, according to the Bible. Now you think about that, and you'll realize that all of those things are fulfilled, aren't they? In the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, when Jesus dies, God pronounces His verdict and judgment against sin and death. The twist is, of course, Jesus dies on the cross instead of sinners. He becomes the abomination in their place, in our place. He takes our sin. But because He does that, the old way of relating to God is destroyed. And that's why also when He dies, the temple curtain is ripped in two. You didn't have to wait till A.D. 70 to see the destruction of the temple. When Jesus dies, the old temple is gone and replaced by a new temple, him. And he is raised to eternal life to take up his rule of God's new world order and offer the new way of forgiveness and acceptance by God. In Jesus' death and resurrection is the end of the world and the beginning of the new. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and I know there are people here who aren't, Can I just again say to you that Jesus is inviting you, that today, because of what He's done for you on the cross, you can be accepted by Him. Because we are in a new order. It's a new way. Forgiveness, freedom, love can all be yours through Jesus today. So coming to my final point. This means that life now, 2018, is life in the end. All right? We are living in the midst of Mark 13, partially fulfilled, waiting to be fully fulfilled. We are living in the end times, the last days, the Bible says, already. Right? Or some, sometimes you hear heard it saying, it's the end is now and not yet. It's a little bit like when you fly, Grace has just been on a plane, um, arrived, what, 20-hour flight. When you arrive in a city by plane, you enter into the country's flight, um, national borders, you're over the city, and you've already arrived in Sydney, but it's still going to take about, you know, half an hour at least, before the plane lands and you can get out of the plane. So have you arrived yet? The answer is yes and no, right? You've arrived, but you still got to keep your seatbelt on, and you're not to take your luggage out, and you're certainly not to walk off the plane. That's what it's like living now the end has come, we're, oh, we're here, but we can't get off the plane yet, now and not yet. Now, all of that is to say that the end of Mark 13, those last few verses are still really relevant to us. And so let me read it out. And let's have a think about how this relates to us today. So verse 32, and he's talking now about the second coming, isn't he? But about that day or hour, no one knows. So, don't believe anyone who says it's going to happen next day or what. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight. Or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone watch. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you today what is your state of alertness and readiness for the Lord's return? What is it? Because so much of the New Testament talks about it. And yet, when was the last time you woke up in the morning and thought, this could be the day? Am I ready? Now, the rest of the New Testament says a lot about what life in the end ought to look like. What readiness ought to look like. It's a number of things. Because of time, we can't go through all of them. Let me just summarize them for you. It means at least four things. It means that there is a priority of preaching. It's not just preaching what I do, but I wanted everything to start with P, and evangelism doesn't start with P. But it means that sharing the gospel with people and helping them come to know Jesus now has an urgent priority because the end is coming. And if we don't, it'll be too late. It means also perseverance in pain. See, it does start with P. Because the pain, as much as you feel it now, will end one day. And our present suffering, says Romans, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Take comfort if you are in pain. It means, thirdly, perspective on pleasure. I won't read that passage, but basically, everything is going to pass away. So enjoy what you have. It's God-given, but have perspective on it. Don't make the good things God-things. And don't be afraid to miss out on pleasure for the sake of what's more important. I would love to be able to travel to Europe. I may not ever get to one day, see Paris. But you know what? Paris will be in the new creation, and I think it'll be slightly better in the new creation than now. So I can wait and prioritize preaching. And perhaps so can you. And last of all, passion for purity. If we're looking forward to this, we make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with them. You don't want Jesus to be returning and you to be caught in some knowing sin. Your sins are forgiven, but it's just going to be embarrassing, okay? So passion for purity. Or someone once said, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, live as though Jesus died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. Imagine if we lived every day as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. They're not easy to understand and certainly not easy to digest, but help us Through the Holy Spirit, help us to be individuals and a church, people that are ready for your coming. Because everything you promise will come true. Amen.